Good morning, everybody. Man, I tell you, a couple of things. Um, this is uh, a good morning for catching folks up. Uh, Jason uh, shared shared with us some of um, the things that are going on with Holy Week, um, but I also wanted to just share a few other special things that are going on in the life of our church and some some things that are to keep in mind as we as we move forward. Um, first of all. Uh, again, apologies about the miscommunication a few weeks ago, uh, but this morning I can officially, actually, really, for reals, uh, announce that Mary Poling will now be an official member of the New Hope Community Church Elder Board. May uh, Mary brings with her an enormous amount of wisdom um, and faith uh, and just love of Jesus. Uh, may her time with the elders um, edify uh, our team and also glorify God, of course. A um, couple of things to talk about as we move through the next few months. So today we're finishing Mark chapter 3. So we've been in uh, Mark for three months now, four if you count the Advent uh, time. But we've been working through our way through Mark for the past three months, um, and this is a good time to pause because uh, what we're going to get into next as we get into chapter 4, um, Jesus is going to start talking a little bit more, uh, we're going to get a little bit more parables um, and um, a few other, uh, what you might call more common Jesus stories. That That's kind of what we're going to be in as we get into um, Mark 4 through 6, basically through uh, Easter, through, um, through Memorial Day. But... Because we don't design the church calendar, uh, we are going to fast forward a little bit um, into uh, the Easter narrative, and we're going to begin that with Palm Sunday. So next week, and you'll see this in your Enu Hope, but the next week uh, we are going to look at the Palm Sunday narrative, as Mark records it in chapter 11. So we're going to fast forward a little bit, and we'll say a few words then about kind of catching up how Mark got from chapter 3, where we are today, uh, up and through chapter 11, and then, of course, we're going to be in the gospel or in the, um, in the passion narrative for, um, for Good Friday. So we're looking forward to that, and of course, we're going to be talking about the resurrection on Easter. So then we'll get back into chapter 4, uh, starting the week after Easter. Um, then I'm going to take a little break uh, because uh, Amy's having a baby, and so we're excited about that. And so you won't see much of me in June. Uh, Jason is going to oversee the teaching in June. He's bringing in some guests. He has some pretty exciting guests, actually, uh, and he'll be preaching as well. And then I'm really excited in July, end of June and July, uh, we're going to be doing a, a preaching series on leadership, um, and we're going to work through the, uh, the book of Nehemiah to go through a book of leadership. Uh, in August, we're going to do a series called The Hope That Is Within You, and you're going to hear from leaders in our body, and they're going to share a little bit of our, their testimony and a little bit about why, um, about what, what, uh, how Jesus has kind of made manifest in their lives, um, and then we're looking forward to that. And then through the fall, we are going to go into a big, long series on the church, on ecclesiology, and I'm really looking forward to that. So anyway, just wanted to give you an idea of where the year is headed and where we're going from here. But today, we are finishing up Mark chapter 3. So could you turn with me there, and at this time I'll ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Mark 
Starting in verse 19b, the second half of verse 19. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for the people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, People will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, "Uh, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, they're asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, all flesh is grass. The beauty of that grass is the flower, uh, uh, like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, endures. Amen? Amen. Have a seat. So when we last left the story, Jesus and his 12 disciples, um, he, he called his 12 disciples to be his apostles. 12 men who would be called uh, to be with him, to learn from him, would ultimately be called upon to somehow continue the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now, not only were they called to be with Jesus and, and to learn from him, but they were also called to be sent out. They would be sent out to proclaim the message and even cast out demons, but, but not quite yet. For now, the disciples are to watch Jesus's every move, listen to his every word, and consider the principles of this gospel to which they have given their life. They make their way down from the mountain and they head towards home and Maybe this is where Jesus was staying, maybe it was where Peter, maybe it was Peter's house, it's, it's kind of unclear, but what is clear, though, is that the crowds are back. There are so many people that the group can't even have a meal because of the amount of people who are trying to get in to see Jesus. Now, some of these people must have been there because they were, they were genuinely interested in seeing this incredible man. They were interested in getting to know Jesus, um, this man who was doing these incredible things. Jesus had healed the sick. He cast out demons. He spoke with authority, even over matters such as Scripture and Sabbath, and, and even seemed to have an authority over the laws of nature. There must have been some in the crowd who wanted more. Uh, they weren't quite sure what was going on, but they knew they didn't want to miss it. Then, there were probably others who were in the crowd who were there because they had heard of the growing reputation that Jesus had um, for having a talent for actually physically healing people. 
Um, the people were there for very practical reasons. If you were sick and you heard that there was a man who healed others that were sick like you, who were sick like you, you might do anything to make yourself, to make your way there, to, to kind of see if these rumors were true. You might even suspend your disbelief um, that something like this could actually be real. I'll, I'll confess that I am hooked on the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now. Did, did anybody see uh, Doctor Strange? Just a few of us, all right. So Doctor Strange is this movie about this brilliant surgeon who is in this horrible car accident that leads him disabled, and at first he turns to the science that kind of made him what he is, but it's, it's to no avail, right? The injury seems too severe. But then he hears rumors of this kind of alternative healing source in the Far East, and he even meets a man who claims to have been healed by him. He spends his last dime traveling to Nepal, and the majority of the movie consists of this brilliant man of science kind of coming to grips with this world being turned upside down by what he finds. You see, throngs of people flocked to see Jesus because they had heard rumors of what this man could actually do. They may have even met someone who claimed to have been healed by him. They, they would have been forced to put down what they perceived as their normal reality to go in search of this man who might just be something more. But when they find him, they are indeed healed. But they would have had to do business with the reality that Jesus was, in fact, not just healing for the sake of healing. He was healing for the sake of what he called the gospel, which is far a far deeper well than anything they were expecting on their way to the, uh, uh, during the journey to see him. The problem is that you can't turn the world upside down and not expect some to be threatened. You can't turn the world upside down and expect some not to be scared some are going to look at this new thing that Jesus is doing and not know how to process it. So their reaction is to accost him with a coward sword, a sword that a coward would use, which is gossip. Gossip is often something that cowards use to attack something that they don't understand. So they begin to spread rumors and they begin telling others that Jesus has gone out of his mind. In this context, um, Jesus' family decides they're going to take action. Now, remember that Mark was probably the first account of Jesus' life that was written, the book of Mark. The evidence shows that Matthew and Luke probably took what Mark had written, and then they expanded it for their own audience, and they kind of emphasized different parts of the story. So one of the things that Matthew and Luke do um, that Mark didn't do uh, was to tell us the story of Jesus' birth. Um, the Christmas pageants that you've most likely attended um, probably had passages from Matthew and Luke. That's where we get the Magnificat and the Nativity and the Manger and the angels and the wise men and all the rest. They, they even spend more time talking about John the Baptist and his parentage. The thing is, Mark didn't really spend any time with that stuff. If you turn back to chapter 1, you'll see some brief words of Hebrew prophecy. And then by the fourth verse, you're taken immediately to the Judean countryside to John. John the Baptist baptizing people in the, in the Jordan. 
By verse 9, Jesus comes onto the scene, and then it's an action-packed narrative from there. The great thing about the book of Mark is that Mark likes to get to the point. By verse 15 in chapter 1, Jesus gives us the point of everything that he came to do. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And right now you might be thinking, man, it kind of seems like he, he finds a way to put that in every one of these sermons. Good. That means you're paying attention. Mark likes to get to the point, and that's why his gospel is such an important contribution to the canon of Scripture. However, when Jesus' family does finally show up in the book of Mark in our passage for this morning, if you had read, if you didn't have Matthew and Luke, uh, which if quite possible you would have read Mark first, um, you wouldn't have known who this mother character was. Now we have, of course, all these images in our head of Mary, of, of Mary's backstory and who Mary was, but it's quite possible that Luke's, or sorry, Mark's audience didn't have that. We haven't even heard Mary's name. And in this story today, we still don't get Mary's name. Mark doesn't use her name until chapter 6. Still, Mary hears these rumors, and she sets out to go find her son. She takes her sons with her, and she sets out to go find Jesus. And they want to talk some sense into him. Seems as if all of this is given in a little out of hand, and the language that Mark uses is that they sought to restrain him. The Greek word used there is the word krateo, which means to take custody of. Where do you think Mark uses that same word later on in his book? He uses it right after Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot and is seized by the authorities who arrest him before the crucifixion. Funny thing about today's passage is that it brackets itself. We talked about this on Wednesday night for those of us who are a part of our Bible study. You might call it a sandwich passage. Jesus' family are on their way to seize him. And the passage is going to end with his family showing up and attempting um, to do what they came to do. But Mark then plops something in between these two brackets that raises the stakes of the game considerably. So overall, here's the point of the whole shebang. Any attempt to hinder or redirect Jesus' ministry or mission is a serious sin. Whether it's instigated by Jesus' bitter enemies or his closest friends and family. See, Jesus is laser-focused on his mission. This is the thing to keep in mind as we work through this passage. So the crowds are growing large, and many of them are spreading rumors that Jesus is going out of his mind. The scribes, the religious authorities, the one who, who are truly threatened by this would-be hero decide that they're going to exploit the uncertainty of the crowds with a more specific attack. Yeah, yeah, the crowds are saying that he's losing his mind. You know what? We're going to give focus to that. Scribes come down from Jerusalem and they start fueling the fire of the crowds and they say, he has Beelzebul. And by the rulers of demons, he cast out demons. Two things about this passage, about that verse. First, the word that probably sticks out for many of you, of, of you is the word Beelzebul. If you're reading from the NIV, it, it probably says Beelzebub. Legend had that Beelzebub was a lesser demonic deity, a demigod who ruled over filth. 
he was said to be the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of the Dunghill. Beelzebul would have been a reference to Baal, the Canaanite storm and fertility god, who was an archdemon who was said to be lord over the demonic realm. So any way you slice it, the scribes are coming out swinging. The other interesting thing about their accusation is the relationship Jesus has with this demon. Some of your translations have the scribes accusing Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, and And this may make you think of movies like The Exorcist, um, of people being possessed by the devil kind of against their will. But that's not really what the scribes are accusing him there uh, of. The Greek doesn't say that he's accused of being possessed by a demon against his will. It accuses him of being in possession of a demon. And it is by that power he does all these incredible things, including casting out demons. Now, you might think that's nitpicking. But I think that if we're going to understand the rest of this passage, or at least begin to understand it, um, it's going to be extremely important when unpacking Jesus' haunting words that come next. So picking back up in verse 23, he called them to him, meaning the scribes, spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. Now, no doubt, for anyone who's taken American history, that you've heard this before in other contexts. Abraham Lincoln famously quoted this passage in his debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858 in the wake of the Dred Scott decision. Lincoln said, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave or half-free. I don't expect the union to be dissolved. I do expect the house to fall. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. See, Lincoln's belief was that the issue of slavery had become so volatile that would, uh, it would have been unlikely for the country to survive much longer divided over something that important. Either we're going to end this detestable practice or we're going to be a country that at best looks the other way. We're long overdue to stop believing the lie that we can do both. And for Jesus, these words showed that Um, It isn't Satan's game to set people free. The, the, The people Jesus had liberated didn't just seem to have been healed. They were actually set free from the demons that held them back. And Satan wouldn't do that. Satan wouldn't cast out Satan. He's not interested in losing anybody. Divided kingdoms and divided houses won't be able to continue that way. Then Jesus tells this short parable that speaks to kind of what he's actually doing. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. By the way, it's interesting that Jesus has now used the word house several times. Remember the context of the passage is that several members of his own household, including his mother, are on their way to restrain him. 
And we'll get back to that in a few minutes. But Jesus says, you want to know why I'm casting out demons? It's because Satan has taken over far too much of this world. That strong man who needs to be restrained is Satan. And the house is the world and the property are human beings. Remember, Mark has already showed us that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was driven out into the wilderness by that same spirit. He gets into a wrestling match with Satan, and then he comes out declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus isn't just interested in kind of sneaking into this world and grabbing just a few pile of people and then taking them back to heaven with him. He's charging into the world and, 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 and tying up its so-called rulers and inaugurating a new kingdom on earth as is in heaven. The cross was Jesus' victory over sin and death and evil rules of, of, of leaders like Satan. His empty tomb is the launch of a new creation, redeeming and reconciling the world that has been held captive by evil for far too long. Jesus says, you want to know why I cast out demons? I cast out demons because the king has returned and I'm ready to take back what's mine. More on that victory in a couple of weeks, but as if these words weren't spooky enough, Jesus then utters some of the most controversial words in the Bible. Picking up in verse 28, he says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. And whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. These are difficult words, and I wouldn't presume to get to the bottom of them. I have a few observations. First, I am thankful that Mark has given us a little bit of commentary as to why Jesus said them. After quoting Jesus' words, Mark says, For they had said that the reason he said this is because they were saying things like, he's got an unclean spirit. Again, the word has three, um, uh, the word has there means that he has possession of an unclean spirit, not that he was possessed by an evil spirit. The scribes had said that it was by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So it's all a question of where Jesus' power come from, powers come from. It would appear that perhaps the scribes didn't even realize the, the, the murky, dangerous, dark territory that they had wandered into. And in a sense, Jesus was looking them in the eye and saying, choose your next words very carefully. Transgressions against God, they'll be forgiven. Blasphemy, as horrible as it is to desecrate the holy character of God, even that can be forgiven. Jesus will ask the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him. But here it appears that Jesus is saying, once you operate under the assumption that the Holy Spirit is evil, there is no way back from that. It's like a person who's bought into some kind of wild conspiracy theory. Everything just kind of seems to to, to, to be confirmation of their previously held assumptions. If you needed surgery, and then somehow you came under the assumption that your doctor was a murderer, you're never going to let him put you to sleep while he has a knife in his hand, are you? 
The scribes may have been under the assumption that Jesus was a madman and a liar, desecrating the Torah, desecrating the place of Israel in the world. They may be hypocrites who don't realize, don't recognize Jesus for who he is, and Jesus is going to go round with them, and eventually this will end up with Jesus himself hanging on a cross because of their blindness. Even that can be forgiven through the sacrificial blood of Christ. But once you're convinced that the Holy Spirit's redemptive work of new creation is actually the work of Satan and evil, there are eternal consequences at at play there. there. There may not be a way back from that. It's commonly said that if you are concerned with the thought that you might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, well, then that's a darn good sign that you're probably in the clear. If you find yourself doubting seeking, questioning, whether there is anything to this Jesus character, whether there's anything actually to Christ, that's okay. See, I trust that Jesus is going to make himself known to you in his time, not mine. And I don't think that's what's going on here. This seems to be more like Jesus saying to the scribes, man, it's starting to sound like you want me to be in league with the devil. And I'm reading into this a little bit, but I picture in that moment, in that moment you could cut the tension with a knife. There may have even been a long moment of silence when no one knew what to say next. Jesus had just said something that would have perplexed not only the scribes, but also the disciples and the, and the crowd of the people who were gathering around him. And in that moment, Jesus and the scribes, they've locked eyes and no one knows what's going to happen next. In that moment, everyone's kind of brought back to reality by, by someone else making their way up to Jesus and tapping him on the shoulder of Jesus. Your mom's here. Your, your brothers have arrived. Your, your families, they're, they're outside. They can't get in because, because there's so many people here. They're calling for you. And I don't know, maybe Jesus was still locked in eyes with the scribes when he decided, when he said, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother? Like, what do you really think I'm here for? Who, who do you believe that I'm here for? What, what do you think I'm really doing here? And then his eyes, he left those of the scribes and he began to look around the room at the crowd sitting in his feet and he says, here, here, here are my mother and my brothers. These are my family. Whoever does the will of my God is my family. Jesus says, don't you see what I've came to do? I've came to reconcile the household of God back to its creator, and I'm calling all sorts of people, all sorts of people to be my family, and I'm doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The thing is, a house divided against, that, that can't stand. Either Jesus is going to be Lord, or he is not. See, we're long overdue to stop believing the lie that he can be both. Jesus can't just be a good guy who had a couple of good things to say and we follow him because he said that we should love our neighbor and that's a good thing and that helps us to save the world. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is king and he is charged into this world to start 
a radical return to the kind of dynamic, life-giving operation that God began in Genesis 1. He came to fulfill the covenant of creating God's people, of naming God's people, the family of God that He started back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. That's the story that Jesus is living into, the return of the King, the return of the Savior, the return of the Lord, the one who is at the center of everything that we do. That's the message of the gospel, that God's kingdom is at hand. It's within your grasp. It's right in front of you. It's offered to you. Accept no substitutes, Jesus says. So as we close up, the worship team comes back up. I just want us to spend a few minutes contemplating whether Jesus is at the center. Have I placed other things in the throne, the chair of the the throne, at the center of who I am, of of my purpose, of of my um, operation, the the way that I spend my, my time, the way that I spend my my, um, my discipleship? Am I looking for other sources to uh, fit into that category? Or have I truly said, no, no, Jesus is Lord. And sure, I, I'm going to fall every now and then. I'm going, I'm going to get off track. And I'm, I'm going to trust that, that there's a church. I'm going to trust that there's brothers and sisters. I'm going to trust in the Holy Spirit to, to keep continuing to correct my course so that I can seek first the kingdom of God. That's, that's what I want I know I'm going to fall. I know I'm, I'm, I'm sinful. But, but in Christ, as we're going to talk about on Good Friday, in Christ, our identity is in the cross and the empty tomb. Our identity isn't in sin anymore. Our identity is in God's family. Our identity is in our citizenship of the kingdom of heaven and no other place. That's our focus. That's our center. And it's with that we need to pray. Father, we confess to you that that each and every one of us, we've put other things on that throne. We've put our jobs, we've put even our marriages, we've put our kids, we've put um, our charities, we've put anything that we can think of. We love, we are little idol factories. We love to put other things in that center. Help us to realize, as, as your servant C.S. Lewis reminded us that when, when first things are put in the right place, when Jesus is on the throne, then all those other things, the things you've called us to do, our families, our kids, our, our communities, all those things are only going to benefit from the fact that I've placed Jesus on the throne, that I've sought first his kingdom and nothing else. If there's anyone in here today who has not dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ, who's not accepted the, the role that Jesus is king, I just pray that you would, you would speak to that person right now, that they would not go one more minute without confessing that Jesus is Lord. Father, we just pray that this church would be a place of growth, that this church would be um, a, 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 a place of worship, a place of discipleship, a place that stands for justice. 
But we cannot do any of it without you on the throne. Without you in the place that you were made to be. That you, that you, that you are for. That's, your, that's who you are. Your character. You are Lord. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.